Hello, my name is Sohela Zibari and I'm the host of the podcast A Myth of My Own, where ancient Persian myths and personal stories come to life. A podcast of spoken and unspoken words. An auditory invitation to taste, to smell, to feel, and to own a dream or two. A place to share myths of our own. Excuse the wars of the 72 nations, for they haven't seen the truth, they took the path of myths. Mulana Muhammad Hafiz Shirazi. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for tuning in to the second episode of my podcast, which also will be the first episode of a series titled The Owl. In this series, before I read from my book in progress, The Owl, which is based on ancient Persian mythology, I would talk about the construction of myths in general and the Persian myths in particular. In each episode, I share my observations, my hypothesis, and my interpretation of what do mythological stories have in common and what external and internal environments can contribute to the replication, rejuvenation, and metaphorses of such stories, which, by the way, sometimes they evolve to become a divine truth. I also want to keep the conversation as light as I can. But before I start on the subject, I should tell a bit about myself, which both contains claims and disclaimers. Well, Let's get to the claiming part, which I think it would explain why I am interested in mythology and storytelling. And as I mentioned it in my first episode, the Noru's special, that the ultimate goal of my podcast is to provide a platform for people of all creeds to be able to share their myths and stories which they grew up with. I have a confession to make. The idea of the podcast came to me in a simple suggestion. It was my literary editor, Bambi here, who recommended to start my podcast and read my old and ongoing materials through it. Then things got out of hand. I could not simply read off my works and call it a day. You don't go to a restaurant with only one item on the menu, if you know what I mean. Not only that, I like to interact interact with people and exchange ideas and stories. Don't worry, nothing gossipy, just a platform for everyone to share. So brainstorming started and plans got more elaborate and just like the parties I used to throw, the guest list increased tenfold and menu became an epic buffet 
but like those parties I gave, I've got no regrets because I have so much fun with this new endeavor. Now, you know how this podcast came about and how it might evolve if it survives. Anyway, I promised you a little background, so there we go. I was born in 1955 in Tehran, Iran, to a multicultural and multinational family. My father was an Iranian Jew and a self-claimed atheist, whose father converted to the Baha'i faith before he was born. My mother was born in the Soviet Union to a Muslim father from Baku and a Russian Orthodox mother from the city of Minsk of Belarus. She was six years old when her parents brought her to Iran. Both of my parents were storytellers, not to mention my nanny who raised me and my siblings, and before that, our father and his siblings. I think you can catch my drift now, why I've chosen to be a storyteller in my old age, which I dreamt of to be since I was only five years old. By the way, my childhood memoir, Dancing Figments, will be presented in the future episodes. But you can read the first couple of chapters at my website, suhailawrites.com. Anyways, as far as my education goes, all my schoolings was done in Iran, and I have a BA degree in Iran's history and Persian literature from the University of Tehran. I emigrated to US in 1979 with my brand new family at the age 25. So all the dreaming of being a writer was left on the back burner. But one thing I never put on the back burner was reading. I read and read. That's how I improved my English. Okay, that's basically sums it up. The back sums it up and um, the background which I came from. But as far as disclaimer goes, <clears throat> I'm not a Persian mythology scholars or expert, but we Iranians cherish our poets. And one of our most revered poets is Ferdowsi, who is known as Iran's Homer. Even before Iranian children start school, they are exposed to his verses and stories. Though I grew up with this culture, I was more interested in prose than poetry, Western literatures specifically. I gobbled up Dumas, Twain, Carol, and Grimm as a kid, and lots of lots of fairy tales. <coughs> Then I graduated into reading heavy-duty authors like Balzac, Dostoevsky, Kafka, Gorky, Chekhov, and a few contemporary Iranian novelists like Hedayat and Dolat Abadi. No mythology books for me, not Persian, not Indian, nor Western, except in the movies. To me, Hollywood was the best.
best myth teller. Biblical, Greek, Indian, sci-fi. I know that myths should be told only on the silver screen. However, in 2005, I decided to write myths of my own. In 2011, I published my first myth based on the life and teachings of Rumi, the 13th century Sufi poet in prose, titled Clay, Fire, and the Potter. In 2014, I published a surreal fairy tale-like short story based on stories of gens in a long poem, titled A Bathhouse in the Garden of Adolescence. You can find both titles at Amazon.com. I hope this bio gives you enough insight. All my interpretation and analysis are based on my own observations and general education and the understanding of my own culture within a limited parameter. But this doesn't mean I don't resort to credible academics. I do read and research like an, like an academic for better understanding. I take notes and nitpick what might be used in my storytelling. But at the end, I'm just that, a storyteller. Even when I'm interpreting and deconstructing a myth, that's why I really need my listeners' input and nuances. Okay, enough of delaying the background. I hope by now everyone knows what's in the store for them. So let's get started. I promise you I keep it short. When I'm talking about mythology here is those stories that has been survived throughout the years because they were written. But every written story has a centuries-old ancestor who spoke in tongues or drew in caves. And we can go back tens of thousands of years to find the building block of human culture memes. Maybe even to the very moment humans became conscious and actively asked why, how, how where, when, and who. And according to the British Darwinist biologist, Mr. Dawkins, who coined the name meme, like human genomes, memes lepicate, rejuvenate, and mutate, and get passed on to other cultures. From then on, humans became storytellers because with why, how, where, when, and who came memories, records, and archives. But primitive humans also lived on instincts and the new knowledge made them aware of their emotions. Who knows, maybe it was their emotions which brought about the consciousness as some theorists hypothesize. So, if it's true, one might say, I fear, therefore I am. Because I assume the fear of death 
was the first emotion humans recognized and recollect when they became conscious. The only inevitability, the only sure thing, the only truth. But the notion of nothingness is hard to grasp, hence the records, archives, and above all, stories. Anything to contradict impermanence or slows down the mortality. Primitive beings hunted and gathered in the daytime and told stories around the fire at nighttime. And some of them with better spatial abilities painted elaborate drawings on the cave walls. I bet it was also them who drew the maps and lead the men to a good hunt. But was it enough to tell the stories of daily life and the past triumphs and failures? Was it enough to immortalize the memories of past? Why not stretch this immortality into the future? Why not immortalize the memories of the future? But to do so, humans went back to the good old why, when, where, who, and how questions. So as humans grew and evolved, so their stories. And in the advent of agriculture revolution and creation of state cities and kingdoms, human stories morphed into epic myths while still carrying many spiritual and cultural means of pagan and herder tribes. Though with their own nuances, if you go over most of these epic myths, and especially the long-lasting ones, you'll find many shared fundamental element, elements in their construct, which they are all created based on the five essential questions. From the Mesopotamian and Hebrews to India, to Far East, to Africa, and to Americas, they all have a lot in common. A long-lasting myth is mostly chronological and linear. It starts with cosmology, the how and the who. How was the universe created and by whom, which usually is a divine force. But with creation comes duality of good and evil. That's when and why Earth becomes a battleground of gods and demigods and other fearsome evil creatures. And it is here the humans come into the picture. Things get bad and a king arrives and brings order that's how history starts. Then the laws are set and rituals take over. With the laws, man knows how to keep the order of the society and the evil at bay. 
And some of those laws are about what to do to achieve a good afterlife. If not physically, at least spiritually, in more sophisticated myths. Because almost every human story is a futuristic one. The future of human after death. In my opinion, that basically it. Of course, each of these myths are much more complex and elaborate in the scope and the nuances. But as I said, my goal is not to teach mythology. That requires a lifetime research and knowing many dead and living languages, which these myths has been written in. And my observations are nothing but a poor attempt of a layperson to understand human desires, dreams, and fears through their stories and subsequently through myth of my own. So let it be written. So let it be done. Now let's get to my story, the owl which is based on the pre-Zoroastrian and Zoroastrian stories. And since Persian culture is primarily an Indo-European culture and is intertwined with ancient Hindu, you will see a tad of Hindu elements in it. But it is noteworthy that when Zoroaster established the new religion in Iran, he superseded the old way of beliefs with new stories using the same elements which constructed both Hinduism and pre-Zoroastrian religion in the region, which I would discuss in the future episode as we go. But you guys don't have to wait for me. Those who are interested to go deeper in this subject can refer to many resources which address the roots of both religions. Also, my story is affected by my upbringing, my education, and all the myths I grew up with, which, as I said, stems out of all cultures I was exposed to, not to mention my own world's point of view. Well... I let you be the judge of that. As I read the first segment of the owl, you will recognize so many familiar stories, which most of them are found in Zoroaster, Gothos, and Avesta. You can find a little bit of Indian Vedic cosmology, a lot of Zorvanese dualistic creationism, which was the dominant brain branch of the Zoroastrianism. The biblical creation of the first man and woman and the Mesopotamian story of great flood which also found in Zoroastrian scriptures and texts. Who influenced who and when and where and how and why will be the subject of my upcoming episode. Also, please note in writing the owl, 
I heavily relied on the writings of Persian scholars like Mr. Hashem Razi, Mrs. Fatime Tawassuli Panahi, and what I remember from the great Hakim Abul Qasim Ferdowsi Tusi. So, there it goes, the beginning of the beginning. The Owl Prologue in the beginning, there was nothing but consciousness, curled onto itself in the equilibrium state, like a wombless fetus. There was neither darkness nor light, for there was no space-time. There was neither learning nor bewilderment, for there was no wanting. There was neither love nor hate, for there was no possession. There was only a vacuous bliss, but it only lasted and an instant. For the consciousness grew weary and discontent of the blissful state, and it uncurled itself into the ever-stretching space-time and became the universe. A pregnant universe, which in an instant gave birth to a set of twin brothers, Ahura Moest, the Lord of Knowledge, and Eternal Light, blessed with the memory of the primordial bliss and anger menu, the prince of darkness and deceit, touched by the residual of the initial discontent. And from the get-go, both brothers went against each other, a war between darkness and light. As two brothers wrestled and trashed each other about, they created cosmos. They rolled and unrolled, entangled and untangled, gripped and ungripped, and in the expanse of ever-stretching space-time, nebulas, galaxies and stars and the orbiting planets sprang into their existence. Until the universe got weary of the brothers' constant warring and designated planet Earth for their battleground. The universe gave both forces equal time and the level playing field. While deep down waging for Uhuru Moe's victory, for it remembered and longed for the ecstasy, ecstasy of the state of the equilibrium. Then, conscious universe gave the brothers limited time to settle their disputes and divided the Earth's periods to four nine thousand years eons. And at the end of the fourth and the last eon, the universe would either become pure awareness and return to its equilibrium state or stay bewildered 
and discontent for eternity, depending which brother prevailed. As soon as the feuding twins descended on earth, they started their one-on-one battle, and on the first day, Angramenu defeated Ohuromoist, and the darkness ruled the first eon. The second eon belonged to Ohuromoist. As the result of this win, the eternal luminous lord extended himself, and seven more luminous creative spirits emerged out of him. Together, they were named Amesha Spentas. Together, they created water, fire, air, and earth, not to mention iron and precious ores. And together, they created water-bound creatures and plants and everything green and lush growing vertical and horizontal. And the universe was pleased. On the third eon, neither forces gained victory and both weakened, for there was no other forces on earth to assist either of them. And the universe saw the futility of the war, for it still lacked creativity and knowledge despite what was created by Uhuromoez and his seven luminous spirits in the previous eon, for the water-bond creatures and plants were happy-go-lucky and weren't interested in the fight between darkness and light. Therefore, in the fourth eon, the universe went behind Angra Mainyu and allowed Uhuromoest and the seven Amesha Spantos to create earthbound creatures and everything crawling, buzzing, and flying, and four-legged creatures and beasts, and above all, the first man and woman. And the benevolent Lord of Light and Knowledge found a fine land which later was called Iran Vage and created the first man and woman out of the four elements of water, earth, fire, and earth, air, and called them Mashi and Mashiana, and settled them in the land's most prolific middle in the northwest. They were tall, fair, and flawless, and became adapted to their land fast and maintained the livelihood by fishing, hunting, eating fruits and nuts off the trees and felt blissful and blessed. But Angra Menu was always spying on his brother Uhuru Moes and found out about his creations and saw the disadvantage. Upon the realization, he roared a fierce roar and the earth cross cracked open deep and wide. He took with him two deadliest snakes, a king cobra and a black mamba, 
and descended into the gash. In the death, depth of the darkness of earth, he squeezed the necks of the snakes and extracted their venoms to the last drop and mixed it with earth's boiling lava. Behold the end of the dawn of mankind, Angramenu snarled and threw the limp bodies of the snakes into the poisoned lava, blew his evil spirits from death of his belly into the mixture and molded two-headed, black-scaled and foul-breathed, non-flying dragon and named it Ajdidahalk, the first Daiva Za'ata, and sent it to the meadows. Ajdidahalk crawled out of the death, depth of the earth and slithered fast and furious throughout the land towards the northwestern meadows. It found the fine pair. It found the fine pair playing on the bank of a stream, chasing each other, splashing water and foreplaying, for they were to procreate and multiply in order to become agents of eternal light and enforcers of truth. Preoccupied and oblivious, Mashi and Mashiana didn't see the dragon closing on them, for it was slithering as fast as lightning through the shrubberies. Did you hear that? Mashiana, the first woman, stopped kissing her mate mid midway, and before Mashi, the first man, responded, the Ajdidahak was upon them. He breathed out its foul and gaseous breath and killed them both in an instant, and the sun eclipsed and the earth froze. Angra Manu roared, and this time in triumph. And Uhura Maest ran into a cave in the Iranvage northwestern mountains. He despaired for three days, hidden in the crevices of the fortress from the prying eyes of the Prince of Darkness and his agent Ajdi the Hawk, wondering what went wrong. Why his creature is successful, not mine, he thought. Then he remembered the dragon's foul breath and realized his mistake. His creatures lacked his spirit, whereas Anger Manu's agent Ajidahog was filled with Daiva's spirit, his creator's dark essence. The Lord of the Eternal Light decided to give it another try, and this time he went to a middle in the northeast. He unfroze earth with his warmth and create the man and the woman anew, tall, fair, and flawless, out of the four elements. But this time he breathed his luminous pharos, his sacred spirits of truth, courage, and power into the second first man and called him Yama. Then he breathed luminous pharos of peace, 
prosperity and fertility into second first woman and called her Yami. And when Ajdi Dahak came for them, Yama and Yami held each other in a tight embrace and evoked their Farahs. Behold the power of unity and oneness. Behold the power of love and courage. Behold the power of Uhura Ma'ez Za'ata, the essence of eternal light and knowledge. They roared in unison and charged the dragon. The beautiful northeast meadow turned into a battlefield. For three days and nights, Yama and Yami fought Ajdi Dahak. As the battle went on the, on the trees and the pastures pulverized, the streams and springs vaporized and the meadows creatures got torn apart. The dust of war rose and eclipsed the sun and earth and the sky became one. For three days, Yama and Yami inflicted deep wounds on their opponent and received many more themselves from it. But their pharas healed their wounds, strengthened their limbs, kept them on their feet, and renewed their hope and resolve after each blow they received. At last, on the third day, dusk, Yama and Yami rose above Ajdi Dahak and inflicted the last blow on its head with their fists and sent it back into the death of the earth where it was spawned. This time Angramenu ran away and following the dragon hid himself in the earth's crack. Uhura Maez was pleased and asked Yama to become his messenger for the future generations yet to come. I'm not worthy of being a prophet, albeit to my own future children, Yama said to his creator. But I can plow and plant. I can herd cattle and tame wild horses. I can lay bricks and build. I can forge iron into swords and blades and fight. I can judge and be fair. Me and my mate can rule but cannot preach. Hence, Ohuromoes granted Yama and Yami a kingdom instead of the sainthood of prophets and gave Yama a golden sword and a silver ring for knew he would make a wise, fair, and brave king and his wife a loving and merciful queen. And to help Yama and Yami rule in fairness and to stay just, Ohurumaz and the seven Amesha Spantas created Izads and Izadbanus, subordinate god and goddesses, to guard the land, water, sky, and the sacred fire. After defeat of Aji Dahak, Yami evoked her pharaohs and copulated with her mate Yama. With the help of Izad Banu 
Ashibangui, the goddess of fertility and prosperity, second first man and woman procreated and multiplied. They and their offspring plowed and planted seed, herd and tamed cattle and horses. They built fine houses and forged iron swords. And with the help of Varaharam, the god of victory and conquest, they kept the land safe from evil and they judged in fairness and they were merciful. Under the rule, the land prospered and populated for 300 years until there was no more space for the growing population. There is no more land to plow, plant and build. There is no pasture for the herds, the Lord said to Yama. There is no more iron to forge and oil to extract for the fire, and you cannot be a fair judge considering the scarcity. Yama agreed. He took his golden sword and silver ring, and with the sunlight guidance, he went to the direction of the south and put the ring on the ground and thrust the sword into the soil and asked the earth to give way and expand. The earth granted Yama his request and expanded. Throughout his first 900 years rule, Yama had to ask the earth to expand two more times, and both times the earth accommodated him. At the end of the 900 years, Uhuru Moez summoned him to his gathering with Izads and Izadbanus and warned him of coming of a lengthy winter which would bring constant fierce blizzards and heavy snowstorms which upon melting would cause a great flood which would destroy the world he helped to build. Then he directed Yama to build a multi-level cave in the highlands of Hara Barazaiti mountains in the north and to gather the finest unblemished human beings and animals in pairs and aromatic and beneficial plants and house them in it until the flood subsided. Since Yama was a great builder, he made the, mort he made the mortar and laid the bricks and built a strong flawless cave with windows in the right places to let the sunlight in. He helped Uhuromoes save the light and the knowledge and countless species on earth prospered and once again teemed with life and Yama ruled for 3,500 more years. Well folks, that was it for today. Please email me your comments at suhailawrites at gmail.com. I'll be forever grateful until the next episode. As Spock says, live long and prosper.